the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is, and welcome back on this uh, special uh, broadcast because it is September 17th, Constitution Day. It is a delight, privilege, and our honor to welcome back the Honorable Associate Justice of the Supreme Court, former guest host of this show and former Maricopa County attorney, Bill Montgomery. Bill, welcome back, and happy Constitution Day. Happy Constitution Day to you too, Seth, and thanks for having me. I was uh, it's been a long hiatus. It's been a long hiatus, <laughs> and 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 I'm glad to have you for what is your first radio interview since you gave up being a guest host of radio shows in the Valley. So ah, it's a delight for us to have that. I was just walking down the hallway. We have posters from previous events. I I can tie the exact time and place of when you and I first met, June fourth, twenty thirteen, Arizona Biltmore. You and I were on a panel, interestingly enough, called The Constitution Under Fire. We were on a stage oh, wow. with John Shattig. I think we piped in Mark Levin. That was the first time I met you, and I yeah. said to myself, I want to know this guy better. It's been a nice ride, I'll tell you that. Oh, and I've, and I've enjoyed our friendship every day since. Day like today, Mr. Montgomery, uh, Justice Montgomery, um, there are certain symbols of America uh, you represent in your own life and autobiography or biography, much of that having uh, been born in uh, the Los Angeles, having served in the U.S. military, graduate, graduated with distinction from West Point, served our country. What does the Constitution mean to you? What does September 17th mean to someone like you today? Um, you know, it it means everything that's important about being an American. Our Constitution distinguishes this nation from every other nation that has ever, and I dare say will ever, exist in the history of humankind. It obviously at this point is the longest running written Constitution and also the shortest Constitution among um, national constitutions around the world. And, and for me, it it reflects, and you know, I'm going to riff a bit off of uh, Abraham Lincoln's observation that the Constitution is the frame of silver around the Declaration, which is the apple of gold. And I think when you when you put the Declaration and the Constitution in proper perspective, the Constitution itself then is the embodiment of the principles set forth in the Declaration. And so for, for me as an American, um, as, as someone who um, you know, pledged to put my life on the line to defend it, and as someone who is now in a position uh, daily to consider uh, the, the provisions of the Constitution and continue to protect it, um, it it's, it's, it's the how of the why we are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
I was making a point, Justice Montgomery, with a caller in the previous hour talking about, you know, the downmarket view, perhaps even in some respects mistaken and in other cases distorted views of what the Constitution means, what it says, what its original intent was. And uh, we were talking just a little bit about that. And he said, you know, I, I, I don't know if these, you know, constitutional legal scholars know very much about the Constitution. And I said, and I'll stand corrected by you if I'm wrong, I said, outside of electives people take at law school, I think law schools are one of the worst places to go to learn about the Constitution because they don't teach the Constitution. They teach what other people said about it. They don't teach the text. They just teach the subtext. And when you're teaching what other people say about it, you can certainly pick and choose what side or who you want to um, who you want to quote in their talking about the Constitution is that is that is that overly stinting view of law schools today, Bill? Is is that wrong to say? Oh, I I I think you make a valid point in this sense that if you take a course on the Constitution in law school, you are not actually going to study the Constitution itself. That's a that's a that's a nicer way of putting it. Yeah, better way of putting it. I, I, I mean the the case law method of learning the law means you're only going to read cases that interpret the text of the Constitution. You're not going to study it. Um, you know, I, I've, I've taught introductory courses to the Constitution, and I always start with uh, the Declaration of Independence, the Articles of Confederation, and then I do an overview of the actual structure of the Constitution itself. There's seven articles. Uh, how, which, which article do you find the executive authority? And go through in that way to actually have a much better framework of understanding in order to then get into cases that interpret the text. Um, I mean, uh, pick up a case on the Fourth Amendment, and you will never read anything that says this gets tied back to the Declaration of Independence when, when you get past the initial introductory language, and, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm not ignoring the language, and getting to the point that once you get into each citation of the Bill of Particulars, the indictment against King George, you will find uh, the, you know, that, that he gave British officers authority under the, the general writs of assistance to go into anybody's house and search for whatever they wanted. Mm-hmm. Well, that then puts the Fourth Amendment and its interpretation in its proper context and helps you understand, why do we care so much as Americans about it? Because that right to be secure in your person and, and your, your home and your effects was so violated and led to our separation from Britain. So it's in the Constitution, not because... Someone thought it was a good idea, but because there is, there is a historical touchstone. And I think for Americans today, um, that's where we often go to. What's the most recent U.S. Supreme Court case on that particular point? And, and we generally fail to keep going back to make sure that we understand what that context is and why it's in there in the first place and, and what its role is in the overall makeup of the Constitution itself to appreciate exactly what it means, why it's there, and why we have to continue to protect and defend it. Bill, we're talking to Bill Montgomery, Associate Justice, Arizona Supreme Court. 
uh, Bill, when when you think about the history of major constitutional cases, case law, the kinds of the kinds of you know cases that 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 I assume most first year law schools have some vague notion of before they go to law school. You're talking about your Dred Scotts, your Roe versus Wade's, your Plessy and Ferguson's, those 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 kinds of your slaughterhouse cases, those kinds of big important life ch- you know uh, course changing decisions. Bill, they teach those, they taught those, and 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 they're still obviously of great uh, import for what they got right and what they got wrong. Do you ever wonder if the United States Supreme Court or even your body or, or other state Supreme Courts across the country are right now engaging in the kind of very decision-making that led to some of those less-than-honorable decisions that we just don't know about right now? Is my question making sense? Do we worry right now about decisions that, in the light of 20 or 30 years hence, could be looked back on as a Dred Scott? Do you worry about that? Um, I be uh, Precisely I, I, because – I'm sorry – precisely because of a misunderstanding of the Constitution and how it was uh, formed and informed. Sorry. Go ahead. Um, I, you know, there, there is always that risk that where people forget its history, they run the risk then of uh, becoming unmoored from those founding traditions and principles. And for, for us, you know, those founding traditions and principles, which were then reflected when they're reflected honorably, you know, you touched on a few that was not, uh, you know, Dred Scott, by C.P. Ferguson, you know, two that immediately come to mind. Um, but I, I guess, you know, I, as an American, I have a right to optimism by my birth. Yep. So I, I would like to think that, uh, our court today would 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 have to engage in serious intellectually deficient reasoning to create a case like that now. And I also say that in the context of uh, what is you know, no longer a movement in its infancy, uh, but a method of interpretation that uh, Justice Scalia was famous for. Of promoting of originalism. Can we talk about that? And I have to take a break here. Can we pick up on sure. that, the different interpretations of the Constitution? I love that you brought up Abraham Lincoln's fragment on the Declaration and the Constitution. He said the assertion of the principle of equality at that time was the word fitly spoken, which has proved an apple of gold to us. The Union and the Constitution are the picture of silver subsequently framed around it. The picture was made not to conceal or destroy the apple, but to adorn and preserve it. The picture was made for the apple, not the apple for the picture. Riffing off King Solomon's Proverbs. I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Arizona Supreme, Associate Supreme Court Justice William Montgomery. Bill Montgomery is our guest on this Constitution Day. Bill, in the last segment you mentioned, of course, we've only had one Constitution, and comparatively it's a short one. It reminded me of the story, you know, you know of the work of uh, the constitutional scholar Walter Burns. 
And he tells the story of uh, in uh, 1987 on the, uh, you know, the 200th anniversary of giving a speech on the U.S. Constitution to a constitutional um, to a constitutional scholars uh, convention in um, in in uh, in in Brazil. And he said he finished talking and someone jumped up and said to no one in particular, why are we inviting Americans here? They've had only one constitution. Why don't we get people from Bolivia who've had hundreds? <laughs> <laughs> to your point. Well, if you go to discuss the experience of writing one, yeah. that's a, that's yeah. a very good point. <laughs> to, to your point, but having one constitution... Boy, you have five people look at it, and you get six interpretations of it. You, um, you were mentioning uh, one view of, of interpretation uh, that is credited uh, to Antonin Scalia's view of original intent. Talk about the different interpretational schools, if you don't mind, that get us to we having one constitution but six to ten meanings of every provision of it. Um, sure. Well, the, the two dominant methods, and, and the ones that are often debated um, uh, among uh, justices on the U.S. Supreme Court now, largely breaks down into um, originalism, of which a textualist approach is one of the tools. So textualism itself is also sometimes uh, cited as a distinct method of interpretation. And then the other, uh, I'll say, dominant approach is uh, sometimes referenced as uh, the living constitution approach, which um, you know, Justice Breyer would say is one in which uh, the enduring principles of the constitution remain, but they're applied uh, over time differently as circumstances warrant. And, you know, as, as, as for me, I, I believe that um, the original intent approach Original public meaning is another uh, way it's been phrased. I think presents uh, the approach that maintains the greatest fidelity to the words as they were written and the meaning and understanding that they had at the time that they were adopted. Now, one of the biggest criticisms of that approach is that you know we're all sort of frozen in time uh, to uh, 1787 and what people understood then. And, and that's, that's not a fair criticism because uh, you know, we've been able to adapt the application of the First Amendment and freedom of speech uh, to circumstances that we have today. And obviously the founders didn't have the Internet, but uh, we're still able to take that language and its meaning and apply it to situations today. The other point that I would make, too, in defense of originalism is that if you don't think that the words of a particular provision are as applicable today or as amenable to addressing situations and circumstances that we have now, well, then go to Article 5 of the Constitution and go through the amendment process. We have 27 amendments to the U.S. Constitution. So it's not impossible. It may be difficult, but it's difficult because it's a political process in which you're trying to craft language that's going to be applicable to the 330-odd million Americans today and the next 330 million Americans who come tomorrow and thereafter. Um, those who 
who promote the living constitution approach, uh, I, I think, you know, to give uh, a fair defense to their argument would be to say that um, we shouldn't be beholden so much to a political process that could, you know, um, uh, not serve the people in a timely way and allow uh, the provisions of the Constitution um, to be adaptable over time uh, when circumstances warrant, uh, and that maintaining fidelity to the founding principles is one way to ensure that you know, judges or justices aren't going to go too far afield. Um, but I, I think Justice Scalia has a better argument in this regard where he would say that the living constitution approach, or pretty much any other approach that you would take uh, to interpret the constitution, doesn't really have a limiting principle. I was just, yeah, that's what that that's what it screams. Keep going with that, yeah. Yeah, and in in converse to that, uh, an original intent, original public meaning approach does have a limiting principle, um, and it, it it's what does lead a judge or justice down the road to conclusions that they may not like, but that the text itself provides the guidance and the direction on where you need to go when you're you're doing the interpretation. Um, Randy Barnett and others uh, are doing a really nice job now, uh, and he heads up the Georgetown Constitution Center of, of uh, engaging in the scholarly effort to provide the intellectual framework for how originalism works. Um, and, you know, I, I think for folks who are very interested in the Constitution, there is such a depth of uh, scholarship now available that wasn't available even 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, that, that, can, that can treat these, you know, these really uh, high points I'm making in further, um, further detail to understand it. And, and quite frankly, Seth, I think it's the obligation of every American to understand their Constitution. Uh, it's the only way in which individually we as citizens in a constitutional republic can make sure that we're doing our job so that others who have particular charge underneath the Constitution do their job. Bill, that's 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 a great analysis of the different ways to interpret the Constitution. For uh, those that are untrained in American history or perhaps even um, constitutional history, what would you communicate or recommend as a as a as a as a reading list, as a back of the envelope, back of the hand introduction to understanding the Constitution? Where would you where where do you direct? Uh, the, the 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 new student, if you will, whether what whether they be eighteen or whether they be forty eight. Oh gosh, um, you know there there are two different publications by Justice Joseph Story. Yeah, uh, that are an exposition on the Constitution. There, there's like a two volume one that yep. is really dense. Yep. but there's a shorter one out there too. And so, you know, I, Justice I would recommend... Story's commentaries. You bet. You bet. Yeah, right. yep. I, I would start with that because, Good. you know, then you get a chance to read a commentary from a contemporary of Chief Justice Marshall and someone who, you know, is, uh, you could say, was there at the beginning mm-hmm. of the effort to to interpret. Uh, so I'd start there. Um, I think, uh, you know, if, if you want to spend a, a lot of time and get in depth, 
Uh, there are a number of books that um, Professor Randy Barnett has written. Yep. Uh, there is a Constitution Reader put out by Hillsdale College. Yep, that is fabulous. Great, fabulous. Uh, place to go. Yep. Um, and and th- those are... That's those a pretty good start. No, you, you could do a lot worse than that. A lot worse. Well, Bill, it's a treat to talk to you again and have you on the airwaves uh, and getting your insights, especially on a special day like today. Thank you for your service, civic and military. Oh. You betcha. Yeah, thank you so much, uh, Seth, for what you do to help keep us informed. God bless you, sir. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Portions of the show are brought to you by Cool Touch Air Conditioning, Heating, and Plumbing. You can forget the heating part for now, but if you have air conditioning or plumbing needs, Cool Touch is the answer. My friends, my family, and I have all been Cool Touch customers for years. Love this company. Chris Funk and his team are a great team. You almost have to experience their customer service to know what I'm talking about, but you're not going to deal with anyone more polite than you are at Cool Touch or anyone more committed to keeping their word. When they say they'll be there, they'll be there. And by the way, 24-7, they are available to you at Cool Touch for all your air conditioning and plumbing needs. Whether you need an inspection, a repair, a replacement, something new, give Cool Touch a call at 623-734-1932. That's 623-734-1932 or CoolTouchAC.com, the only company I use. A lot has been said on this show. I was I, I was glad to see it, <clears throat> though I um, didn't expect it necessarily. A lot has been said on this show, not by me, but I think from Three Callers and Bill Montgomery, that uh, uh, talking about the importance of the preamble of the Constitution – in fact, we had a high school teacher from Glendale. Thank you. Yes, that's right, Glendale. From Glendale talking about how the school principal read the preamble of the Constitution over the public address system this morning. And I thought I'd give you Jaffa on this. The preamble of the Constitution crowns its enumeration of the ends of the Constitution by declaring its purpose to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. No words of the Constitution reveal the intention of the Constitution more profoundly than these. The preamble is the statement of the Constitution's purposes, and this culminating purpose embraces and transcends those that have gone before Alone among the ends of the Constitution to secure liberty is called the securing of blessings. What is a blessing is what is good in the eyes of God. It is a good whose possession belongs properly only to those who deserve it. We remember that the final paragraph of the Declaration of Independence appeals to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions. It is thus by the authority of the good people of these colonies that independence is declared. And it is because of this assurance of their rectitude that this good people and their representatives placed a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence. That, that is the meaning of the preamble to the Constitution. We who hold these truths are the same we the people. And the Constitution was to secure that which 
as good in the eyes of God are liberty. Spare me, Democrats and Republicans, who in these times say blank liberty. And sometimes it begins with the letter F. Blank liberty. Spare me that. Spare me that. Tim is in Peoria. Hello, Tim. Seth Leeson, how are you, sir? I am fine. How are you? That's a good greeting. I like that. So, as we talk, and I always, you know, again, I always think that you are a messenger of history. Uh, I don't know if that's a compliment, but that's the way I look at you. I know that you are not a student of history, as we talked about before. <laughs> I don't remember why I said that, but if you do, I'll take no, it. Okay. Said, someone said, someone, it was it was, I think it was Joe Biden who said he was a student of history, and we were making fun of you. Were making light of that comment, and I, I chimed in, and I was trying to defend you by by you calling yourself a student of history, but that's not what you actually said. <laughs> uh, it was a couple of weeks ago. Okay. In any event, okay. So this morning, I get a call. I, I so I this morning I do what I do on every Constitution Day. I go, thank you for the freedom, thank you for the liberties, and the and the, and the living document, if you if if you will of what's guided our country to success and exceptionalism. And uh, this morning I got a couple, I got a couple of calls from, from previous students. And they were very nice, but they were very terse. And their, uh, their message to me that, yes, Mr. Kane, uh, today is Constitution Day and we should celebrate the 17th of September. But should we not be highlighting June 21st, 1789 as the day that that great document was actually ratified. Okay, all right, hold then, it, hold it. Can you do this after the break? Can you stay with me? I got to oh, take. Yeah. yeah, okay, oh, good. Yeah. This is fun. Professor Tim, thank you. We'll be right back. 602 If others want to join, we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. History teacher Tim in Peoria talking to us about uh, why we celebrate uh, 1787 and not the ultimate ratification of the Constitution. Great point, Tim. Go with it, as Bob Hartley would say. Go with it. Yeah, so obviously seven, uh, September 17th is a great day for anybody who loves America, anybody who loves American history and uh, moving forward. However... I've always been a stickler for the ratification. I've always been uh, a stickler for the, you know, 1789 when the, the, the Revolutionary War, if I recall, I think I have that date right. September 2nd of 1789 is when uh, America's birthday was actually, uh, was actually seen through, not July 4th of 1776 when we simply declared independence, but it was the Treaty of, uh, uh, Treaty of Paris? Yeah. Oh, gosh. Uh, am I an idiot? I'm sorry if I'm, I'm doing this wrong. Uh, You're doing it fine. You're doing it just fine. Recognizing, yeah, recognizing the, 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 the dirty British. You know, <laughs> had to right. recognize the United States of America as being a sovereign country. That is my birthday. But again, I love hamburgers and hot dogs in <laughs> America. So I will, I will marry into the July 4th craze. But yeah, my students that did... Uh, you know, hit me up this morning. They made a really good point, and they they do it a lot. Uh, I'm no longer in the classroom. I've moved on to bigger and better things. But uh, you know, they they keep me honest because again, I was bragging about the, con- the you know Constitution Day, and here they come out and say, "Hey, 
aren't we looking uh aren't we being a little a little fast on <laughs> a little premature a little early <laughs> popping I, the champagne I, I a little too soon yeah. Pro- probably I, james I wilson like said it. that to ben franklin we might be popping the champagne a little too soon we have a little more work to do right <laughs> absolutely and, and you know i love and, and, and thus came and thus came the federalist papers and and there we are. Fed ten is my greatest, what my favorite one on factions. But um, boy, you read you know, Federalist Ten, you could do an entire course on human human psychology, couldn't you? I mean, it's about really, human nature as much as it is anything else, isn't it? You really can. When I when I look at everything in politics that's going on right now, moving from Barack Obama and moving and coming forward, uh, factions are the disease that's destroying America, in my opinion. Uh-huh. But when I use that word factions, everybody looks at me like I'm crazy because, well, not a lot of people understand what a faction is, and that's right. unfortunate, but uh, to each his own. When I, you mentioned the preamble, and yeah. I love the preamble yeah. only because when I taught the Constitution, I had, I had a couple of classes. I, just, not only, I had my AP government class, my AP U.S. Uh, history class, but I also did an American justice elective. And when I taught that, when I taught the Constitution, as far as the text of it, like you that you think is important, which I agree with you, that's just not case law. But I do respect uh, Bill Montgomery's insight because I love case law just as much as anybody else. Uh, the preamble I used to call the mission and vision statement, all wrapped up into one. Mm-hmm. And it, a lot of people thought that the you know, that the preamble itself has uh, legal uh, legal meaning, legal. Uh, I guess, legal muscle, and it doesn't. It's just, it kind of like the purpose of the Constitution, this is what it is, but can we all see, can we really get to equality for all? And, um, you know, that's, I had a lot of questions for from my students when, because the preamble was very uh, pure in its uh, wording, and it just, it, it really couldn't apply in, in, in a legal sense, in my opinion. Let me ask but, uh, you, well, yeah, it would be tough. Occasionally you see efforts to do it. The Supreme Court generally doesn't. You're right. The federal courts, you know, generally don't. You see it used a lot in impeachment type scenarios, if that's the right word. Sure. You see and it's it, always good you to see it used a lot use there. That. But I'm one who yeah. argues for the reentrenchment of the meaning of these things. You know, I, I kind of look at these written documents, whether they are uh, theological that predate the Constitution or the Constitution or the Declaration under the understanding, Tim, that, you know, no one puts these words down uh, for no purpose. Uh, The words must be granted a purpose and a meaning, right? They must be, in other words, granted an effect. And I don't know that I could say about the current Supreme Court or current federal court's uh, writ, writ, writ broadly, I don't think I could say that they treat uh, the preamble today any differently than they treat the first, second, fourth, fifth, ninth, and tenth amendments. They basically yeah, I, ignore them. For sure, I do. I think that the the Supreme Court has been a huge disappointment. Uh, you know, and I'll just I'll start with John Roberts and move forward. Uh, you know, we were sold on John Roberts. And uh, I'm not saying that he's a disappointment. I'm just saying that he's a disappointment, you know, as far as what was sold to us. But it is what it is. You know, I am I am not smart enough to interpret the Constitution. Sure you are. And apply all the cool things that go along with it. 
but um, I, 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 I think that's the surrender I regret uh, to hear from you because it, it, of course, was written for all of us, right? You know that, and and I yeah, hate no, that it we was. cede it to yeah. the experts. Yeah, I, I I think that sometimes you know I I look at what the SCOTUS has done lately, and I say no, they're totally wrong. But again, who am I? And who are the people that call them wrong? We have well, our the pair that you are the people the Constitution was. You are the person the Constitution was written for. Absolutely. And 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 and, I, and, and, and let us not consign it. By the way, it's only meaning to the to the Supreme Court and their decisions. Right. right? I, I mean, no doubt you've taught Lincoln's. Has, yeah. Res- yeah, you've taught Lincoln's response to the Dred Scott decision. Yeah, I think that a lot of people hold judicial review as some kind of a un, like a holy entity, exactly a holy right, element exactly. or power, and they exactly. think that it's only up to the SCOTUS. Right. Uh, when we give our opinions, if you and I were sitting around and we gave our opinion on a case, they would look at us like we're nuts. <laughs> at least they would for me because they'd say, "Well, who are you, Mister Kane?" I go, "Well, I'm just a guy." Like, well, you're no John Roberts. I go, I guess I'm not, but <laughs> I, take I also know that you can't just make up a task. There you go. You, you can't do it. There you but go. Yeah, yeah I, I can't invent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can't invent taxes. And I think that's where John Roberts got it wrong. But, you know, on a, t- on a day like today, I, I hope that people reflect back and, and start looking at not only the Constitution, but what came before it. The Declaration, mm-hmm. the Mayflower Compact, the Magna Carta, all of these documents, you can go back. And look at John Locke and all of it and put it together and say, our Constitution is original, but it sure did have some precursors to it. And it all starts back in my hometown of Boston, Massachusetts, when that little settlement up in Plymouth all, all happened. Where'd you, where'd you go Again. to high school in Boston? Well, no, no, no. So I, I, I was a military brat. Uh, I was a DOD kid, but I was born out of in Lexington, Massachusetts. I love it. I love it. Tim, I got to run. Forgive me. Forgive me. I love you. Forgive me. Forgive me. I got to run. We'll be right back. In his confirmation hearings to become an associate justice of the Supreme Court, Clarence Thomas faced a Judiciary Committee that was then chaired by Joseph Biden, one Senator Joseph Biden. On that committee was a senator from Wyoming Republican named Alan Simpson. Some of you may remember him, kind of a cantankerous, witty um, renegade of sorts, the likes of which you don't see anymore. And after a great deal of time was spent with Clarence Thomas's views on the natural law interpretation of the Constitution and why the Declaration of Independence should inform the Constitution. And Clarence Thomas thanking the scholarship of Harry Jaffa. It's in the transcript. I'm reading from the proceedings right now. Senator Simpson says, I don't know who this Harry Jaffa is, but I'd certainly like to meet him one of these days. I'll finish with Harry. Today we're faced with an unprecedented threat to the survival of biblical religion, of autonomous human reason, and to the form and substance of political freedom. It is important to understand why the threat to one of these is a threat to all. It is above all important to understand why this threat is above all an internal one, mining and sapping our ancient faith both in God and in ourselves. The decline of the West is the paramount reality facing us today. Perhaps our most immediate danger comes from the historical pessimism of those who counsel us that this is inevitable and that nothing can be done about it. But this danger is itself a danger only if we believe it. 
It is precisely by taking thought that this superstition can be dispelled and with it the unreasoning fears that it breeds. So as we enter into this celebration of the Constitution, let us renew our ancient faith, the faith of Abraham Lincoln, who said that right makes might, and in that faith, let us to the end dare to do our duty as we understand it. God bless you all. Until Monday, class dismissed.